Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Bijou Banter in the Carrie Wise studio. We have Dan McGregor Hoyer, sorry. Yeah, you fumbled there, yeah. Hello yeah. guys. And we have two cats in the house. Cat Hello. Hurt and Cat Drop Aaron. Hello. That sounded a little strange, I'm sorry. <laughs> and today is Friday, February 24th, 2023 for you film fans out there. It's Twin Peaks Day. We're not going to be talking about Twin Peaks because over the peaks there's a sun. So we're going to talk about After Sun <laughs> and All Quiet on the Western Front. The 2022 remake, uh, not the original. So we're going to begin this episode with talking about After Sun. It is the directorial debut of Charlotte Wells, written and no, she didn't produce it. Also written by her. Um, this is it stars Paul Mescal, um, Frankie Corio, and Celia Rowlson Hall. And the plot of After Sun. This is from IMDb. It's about Sophie, who is a 11 year old girl um, who remembers a holiday that she took with her dad, played by. Paul Mescal, and then um, tw 20 years earlier, and then she realizes that the memories and the, she fills in the gaps and tries to reconcile with her father as she realizes that's not the man she knew until much later. Very emotional, very melancholic, and just all around fascinating. So what do we think about this movie? Yeah, it's honestly, you described it perfectly. It is very melancholic. Um, I mean, I, I knew about this film. I, you know, I was trying to get, this I wanted to see it at film scene early this fall, but obviously other things have happened where I couldn't. And uh, when I saw it, like, I saw it actually, like, at home with, like, one of my, my, like, sound bar and TV. And when I saw it, it's, like, it was very emotionally impactful. I think this is, like, one of those stories where it's, like, so simple, but it just has the deepest meanings within it. And especially the idea of, like, you know, showing um like a parent going through um really heavy emotions from the, ch from the perspective of a child is like very captivating and it, it's just like you know whenever like you know we're kids and we just kind of see like you know our parents kind of going through stuff and it's just like in looking back on it, it's like man i wish i didn't look that over as a kid it's like it's just one of those films where it's like you know it really hits deep like after you like moments after you see it and it's like one of those films that you know it's just once in a lifetime people have to see at least once it's like amazing by the way there might be minor spoilers for after sun if you haven't seen it uh we might be discussing some details especially towards the later third anyway cat or cat <laughs> um i guess one thing that i was kind of tracking through the film that i found really fascinating like to explore this idea of melancholy was the like the color theory and the editing specifically when we're in these kind of I guess past feeling present moments with the daughter um, and her father everything is really yellow and warm and bright and then it goes in between these like flash forward um, really disorienting quick fast-paced editing that kind of feels like someone flicking a switch on and off and everything is really blue and you can't really tell what's going on and you kind of piece that together as the film progresses which is just a really interesting way to deal with memory and the kind of like yellow light shining on her father when she idealizes like his emotions and then you know switching to this sad blue um, as she like learns more I guess. Well, this is my favorite movie of 2022, so I have nothing but high praise. Um, it might be a bit personal for me, like I'll just kind of say it, like a lot of this film was called to me because I have lost my parent, I've lost my mother, 
Um, and this was the first film that I felt like I truly could kind of like feel that grief through. Um, when I saw it the first time, I literally cried from the minute it started to the minute it ended, and I was like full body sobbing, but it wasn't like a bad feeling. Like I left it feeling like I, I, for, I, I, this weight on my chest was like lifted. Because I think for Charlotte Wells, who also has lost her father, this is a very, very personal film. She's been working on it for years. Um, she went to Sundance Lab. She's had this in like multiple stages. That this film is so tender in the fact that it is exploring um, this like grief through touch. I think because I think oftentimes for people who have lost a parent like and are older, when you're looking back, um, you're creating and recreating these memories to understand who that person was. You're creating an idea of them. Like you're you're wondering like it's a ghost, you know. And you're looking at these images and there's like these videos you have and these photos you have and this person isn't around anymore, but there's such a haunting presence of them. And I think for this film, like what really drew me to it and what really stood out to me and made it such a film that like was very unique in its description of um, grief and its like image of grief was that because Sophie has all these photographs and these videos and a lot of this film is shown through digital media and this like collection and this archive um, and the way that she just kind of restructures him and understands him afterwards from her adult perspective because now she is a mother and you know what I mean now she has to understand what it means to like kind of give up and be like sacrifice parts of yourself or be hidden like it's just Maybe I'm not very eloquent right now, but it's just very over, over, over emotional and very over, like, and very powerful. And I have such a deep, deep, deep love for this film. Yeah. I have an interesting experience with this film because I, I saw it for the first time. I saw it was in the theater, and I really liked it. But I knew that I felt like I was missing something. Like there were people on Letterbox and on Twitter and on just various critic sites that were rating this as like one of the best films of the year or the best film of the year. Um, this was notably Sight and Sound's poll, it was the top film of 2022, and Charlotte Wells won Best Director for the National Society of Film Critics. So it was just like, there was a lot of, there was a lot of praise going on around this movie, and I knew that like there was something there, but I didn't see it, so I was looking forward to rewatching it. So I rewatched it for this episode. I haven't seen it since the theater, and rewatching it, it is such a different experience, primarily because the thematic context of this movie and the whole um, emotional angle is, is the fact that Sophie is experiencing this time of just pure joy and happiness whereas Callum who, who's the dad is trying to keep a, a happy face but is just ultimately severely just depressed and in this state of detachment and that and the fact that he can't really express that to to his daughter and she doesn't even she doesn't recognize that that's what's so heartbreaking about this movie that's that's apparent on a first watch on a second watch when you know that it's even more heartbreaking and I, I know, Kat, you've seen this multiple times. Yes. Have, Daniel, have you seen yeah, it? Again? I, have you, Kat, as yeah, well? Yeah, I actually watched it a second time. Okay, last okay so we all, we've all seen it a second time, so I, I feel like I, I don't really have to, like, echo anything, but just, it's such a beautiful, beautifully told and beautifully acted film that hits on a lot of emotional chords in ways that few films do, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of movies about, like, um, that show the relationship between like a parent and their kid but with that added emotional context it's and the way it's edited too it stands on its own in in a way that i don't think many other films have that sort of resonating impact like especially in the last third with the um sort of like the montage editing cutting back and forth between adult sophie and child sophie reliving these memories from like the tape all of the all the memories of nostalgia are just on that tape and we kind of we remember elements of the of the person 
even if we don't have the evidence, but it's more like spurts. We just remember happy times and we fail to connect the dots of just everything. And that's when we see that and when we understand that as an adult, it's, we're just like, wow, did we even know this person? We, we might even have some sort of guilt and regret. And oddly, when rewatching it, that's kind of how I felt too, is the fact that I feel like I missed so much of like what this movie was trying to tell me and, and realizing that it only elevates it even more. So the rewatch value on this, even though when you rewatch it, you just still feel like so bummed out. It's so like, um, it feels so satisfying just because you feel like more of this story is being revealed slowly piece by piece. And I think that's one of the best compliments anyone can give to a film really. And we haven't really discussed this, but performances, Palmas, how do you pronounce his last name? Is it Mescal? Mescal or Mescal? I, I honestly don't know. Mescal and Frank DiCorio are incredible. Like their chemistry and their performances carry so much of the, of the script. And the script is also incredible, but Charlotte Wells has so much control and freedom with this project that like nothing feels like it's overlooked. And it's just, and this is her first film. This is her first film and she handles it like a master, which is all the more impressive. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like watching Barry Jenkins' first film. It's like, you know, he just gets it down right away, and Charlotte Wells gets it down right away. I mean, the thing that was like very impactful for me was the camera work, because there are some shots in this film where it's like, they're on, like, they're in, they have intention behind it. Like, there's this scene where, um, they're in the hotel room and it's like you have like this blurred background while somebody is sleeping in the foreground and you can't it's like it's giving you like you can't tell what's going on in the background like it and but you kind of pick up those hints about it but it still leaves that ambiguity behind it and i think that's what works so well about this film that it is very simple in its camera work but it just leaves it so effective and it works very well i was very impressed with well, I would like to make clear that she actually did have a few uh, shorts before this. Like, she, this yeah, is her she first did. feature length, but she has done a lot of short work. Um, she went to NYU and she did a few films while she was living in New York. And one of those is called Lapse, which I think is a really important, like, predecessor to After Sun. It's very different in the way it, it handles touch and it handles, like, that memory and that, like, trauma and experience. Um, because it is about a woman being sexually, like, um, abused on a train. So it's, like, a bit, it's very dark. It's very, um, like, but it, it's a really good watch. It's, it's a beautiful film. And in that, like, it's very, like, she focuses on touch as well, like, this this body and, like, this hands and stuff like that. But it's not as, like, fond or as, obviously, not as fond as it is in After Sun, where, like, you see these soft hands on a boat, like, holding each other, him brushing the rug and, like, kind of centering himself in that moment with, like, you know what I mean, like, meditation and just, like, breathing and stuff like that. And I just think, like, it's, she's always had this type of, like, hold, I think, from the beginning, from all of her, sh- her short films, too. And she's been really interested in this, um, like the way that we process trauma and the way that we process like experience and that has always been kind of a, a tender theme and within all of her films and um i just think like she's very inspired by claire denis it's obvious that she's a film student i think that um she's taking these touches from people and i think when you mentioned barry jenkins this is produced by J- mm-hmm. barry jenkins who also is a claire denis fan so i think there's like um a lot of this softness and stuff like that comes from like this i think adoration of other directors who understand that like you can hold back you mean like you don't have to say everything like you can hold back and you can keep it tense and you can have things happening in the background that you mean that like you you that are so simple and so out of the way but mean everything you know what i mean and i think that like that you don't know just like being able to do that and have that patience like that's very important yeah yeah so kind of on the same idea of touch but looking more like at the scenes in the film i guess 
there's this repeated moment of like the father washing off Sophie's face with this little like cotton wipe and there's even a moment where she wipes his face off and I just think there's this tenderness in it and something that is just expressed throughout the whole film is like he wants so much for his daughter and like as we learn more about Callum in the film we learn that's like part of the reason he wants his daughter to have things like singing lessons or wants to teach her self-defense is because he didn't have you know the same support that he wants to give and it's so beautiful and we see that with you know with parents in real life and I think that it's such a a universal feeling that makes us think about our own parents and that's why it's such a it really achieves its project I think what you're saying with touch too it's like um a common thing is like the let me teach you let me teach you with the pool game and with the with um, the self-defense like he's constantly trying to give her these lessons because he he's a he says in the end like he's like I want you to be able to come to me when you're older with anything you want and I think there's this fear from him um, as a character of her being defenseless because he knows somehow she's going to end up on her own. You know what I mean? Because he, he knows there's this future that he might not be able to be there for. And I think, like, that is just such a an interesting thing. I think and such a heartbreaking thing that this parent, like, wants so much for his child and, like, he, he loves her so deeply and you can tell that he does. He's so, like, infatuated and, like, careful with her. But the fact that he knows, like, in the end that he might hurt her. And I think there's this shot in there that I, like, it's... It, to this day, I'm, I wonder what its purpose is in a good way. Like, I'm like, you know, I, mean? I, I always like pull it apart. It's like, there's this postcard and it says like, I love you more than anything. Like, love dad. And you can't tell if that's from now or if that's from the future, if that's like the final thing he said to her. But like, it just, he, I think that's something about this. It's just like that more than anything, he wanted to be her father. Like through all of this, no matter what, he wanted to be her dad. We're gonna transition to a quick grants file. We'll be right back with more BG banter. Welcome back to Bijou Banter. We are continuing our conversation on After Sun. And I, I like what you touched on about the universality of just parenthood in this movie. And I, what's so impressive is that if you were to break down this movie plot-wise without sort of digging into what like interpretations are, what the, just the underlying, just the max subtext, it's a pretty straightforward, at least in my opinion, it's a very simple narrative. It's like, we're following this this dad and her daughter on on this vacationing like resort pretty much and how we sense like this relationship sort of growing because like there is a strong bond between these two you believe you believe that they're family and little things and just how they talk to each other and how they react like even things like when um Callum's like all right on the counter we're gonna throw like this piece of bread and then just like run away during like the dinner show like that just shows like this sort of playful energy between the two and it's all it, for Callum at least. It's kind of it's kind of all show just because he there's a scene when he start he breaks down crying when it's juxtaposed with um, with Sophie leading a crowd of tourists into seeing um, Happy Birthday and it's such a harsh juxtaposition just because that's really what's going on inside his mind every waking second and <laughs> you you like want to say something? Yeah, I just I, I kind of want to push back on the idea that he like it's all for show because I think he is putting on a face for her because he is hurting but also I think that he is genuinely like involved with this because I think yeah. like I think he does he is having fun and he is genuinely feeling like into this scene with her and he he loves doing those little things he's like he's the one that suggests like the throwing the toast and he's like kind of like there's like this like karaoke tradition that they have that he's not doing here because obviously he says no but like that they kind of assume that he does in the dancing at the end like he pulls her into that so I think he he is engaged with 
showing her a good time and having a good time because I think he genuinely loves having like this this amount like he yeah. loves her so much that I think with that like with when he's saying happy birthday to her it's because he can't be happy that he's like oh my god but I, just, I think like yes he is performing in a way but I, I just I don't think every single moment in this film with them together is him putting on a face for her if that makes sense yeah so kind of off of that i agree but i also think like the idea of a mask is like intensely yes. put in this film and there's one moment in particular where like the daughter is kind of having a, a deep like rant to him in a way or almost a soliloquy is what it feels like of like having like you know melancholy emotions and i feel like this is the first visual moment in the film that we see the mask fall from the dad mm -hmm. like his face he's looking in a mirror and he just spits at his own reflection. Yeah. And I just think that's such a, you know, a, a powerful moment. And I agree with you that, like, I think that it's not all for show because he is so, he's trying so hard for her to have an amazing time. But at the same time, it's like, we see these cracks. And I think as the movie progresses, yeah. these cracks are kind of like the dad sleeping more and more and more, mm -hmm. showing how tired he is because he's like, wanting to be happy with his daughter so badly yeah. and it, it you know falling short of of ultimate happiness yeah. i think that's why it's a great character because it's like it's such a complex person you know what i mean it's like i think so often people try to like you know simplify characters it's like they either have to be good or bad or they have to feel good or feel bad and it's like this is someone that can be imperfect and perfect like he can be failing her in a way but he also can be something the, the exact person that she needs you know and that like he also he can like love every single moment with her and you can have a smile on his face that is blinding and he can be laughing and he could be you know like this could be the exact place and the exact time that it's like he needs to be but it also can be like that inside he's like struggling you know i think it's it's just very graceful character work and i think it comes from a place of knowing that this is in a way about her own father charlotte wells's father so i think it comes from that like sense of like she you know, has her own adoration her own the grief you know what i mean and this own person that's haunting her yeah, I mean, I think that's why Gore, you know, and Charlotte Wells and Paul Mescal are were pretty much on the same page about this character because, you know, Wells is having a way where he, where, you know, he needs to be portrayed in a certain way, and Mescal's is, like, just amplifying that and, like, you know, still having those subtleties in there that upon a second watch you wouldn't, you would kind of catch on to pretty quickly. And then I think it's, like, you know, it's, that mystery that, you know, Mescal was able to bring that I think really garnered him that Oscar nomination. I mean, because obviously there's a lot of emotionally powerful moments that he has in this film, but it's just the subtleties that can just shade, like, that can just say, like, yeah, this is a well-deserved Oscar nomination. I mean, he just pulled off a performance that, you know, was subtle in the best ways, but also emotionally captivating as well, and it just worked. I really think that, you know, I mean, I, I don't think he's going to get Best Actor, but I think it was just a well-deserved nomination. Yeah, the, the subtleties of After Sun is ultimately what becomes the most resonant about it as, as a film, as an experience, as a script. Just because there's, like, the nuances in terms of how the, the emotions are captured, and, or if we, like, explore the imperfections of, like, some of the characters, kind of like what Kat was saying about, um, about just Callum as a whole, like, like this sense of contentment but also the fact that he's just like in times where he's like as where he's just alone you just you see more of like how maybe what's going on inside like he always smokes whenever sophie is either not in the room or is asleep like it's even apparent from like one of the very first scenes like he smokes on this on the balcony or when he's going out for a walk he just he picks up a, he picks up a cigarette that was probably already used by someone 
just like show showing that just in very just through it's show don't tell and that's and that's really important in this movie even the editing too like mm. i i could go on about just the whole rave scene how that sequence or just the ending as a whole which so hard not to get into but just how that's presented how that's paced jumping back and forth through time and also thinking like what is this supposed to represent that whole thing just ties everything together so perfectly and it's like this is what we've been building up to and it's very satisfying and very sad though yeah i think something that ties together those two scenes and it's very important i think to this film and to making it work is phenomenology and the sense of touch and the memory of touch um, I think a lot about Vivian Sobchak's piece. I definitely recommend it to anyone who is listening to this because she talks about how when watching Jane Campion at the piano, she saw like sunlight through the oh, fingers yeah. in the first shot and was like, I can feel that. And I think that this film is, she's very, um, Charlotte Wells is using theory. She's using film theory and the theory of phenomenology to work with like, um, like Callum and Sophie touching each other where it's like, again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but it's like those very detailed shots where it's like, the hands laying on top of each other in the sun and it lingers there for 30 seconds and the hugs that they're holding they're always holding each other he's always like wiping her face or like cradling her back or like she's like rubbing her feet on the carpet that he bought 30 years prior that he was rubbing his hand on you know what i mean so like in that rave scene we see the culmination of all these small touches where she as the adult sophie is going back and seeing her father where she is like making these points of contact in her memory where she's like i know for a fact that we were holding each other at this moment and then like in the rave they are both like it's when he holds her brings her in his arms spins her around that the adult sophie grabs him and holds him and like yells in his face and it's so bodily because it's her feeling that grief it's the younger version of herself feeling that like sadness it's us feeling that sadness i know as an audience member like that that touch i i felt that because i was like i could feel the presence of my own mother like my you mean like that grief that that ghost that's haunting me i could feel her touch her hands and i was like because I mean, like, I think, especially for that scene, I was like, that hug that you will never get, that person you can never hold, you can never grasp again, you know what I mean? Like, you you feel their presence around you, and it's, it's comforting. And it's like, I don't think of it as, like, heartbreaking. I think of it as something that's, like, I guess, well, it is, but, like, I, I don't think of it as something where I'm like, this is so tragic, this is so, like, it, to me, it, it has this sense of, like, finality, where it's like, you get to say goodbye, and you get to... Hold this person for one last time and they'll be gone but that's not necessarily a negative you know it's like you you finally got to see face to face who they are they got to see you as, a, as an adult and they you know what I mean and it's like you kind of come to peace with the fact that like you'll never be that kid and he'll never be that person but like you can be together in this I, moment i guess bittersweet is probably the more appropriate word to describe just that whole the whole ending i guess there's also there's like really interesting framing too like there's the one shot when um when sophie's filming her dad which is the opening scene and then like probably about midway through we see that and then it's on the tv as well and then she turns off the camera and then we just the whole scene is framed like on, on the tv with like with like a stack of like tai chi books and self-help books and then callum and sophie are in the in the glass of the TV, and it's like that is such a beautiful shot, and just there's it holds on that for a while. It's probably like a single take, and it probably goes on for about five minutes. And choices like that are, yeah, it's just effective. Sure. Oh, yeah. oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, I mean, I think like you know that's part of because you know the film just like has simplicity to it, but it's also like you know those external subtleties and those complexities that really make it work. Um, I think, like, especially with the ending, where, like, you know, it kind of has this, like, 
these camera pans and just kind of these match edits where it's like you know it's not like everything is coming entirely full circle but it's this feeling like man you just experienced like somebody going through like a realization there and it's just like you get especially the scene where it's like you know it comes off the tv and then you see the adult version of sophie on the couch and then it just keeps panning around and gets to its final shot it's like I mean, that's where I kind of felt like the most emotionally captivated. It's like that realization that's like, oh, damn. Not, not, to, not to spoil like the final, final moment of that yeah. shot, but what, I don't know how I like kind of like, it kind of went over my head at first, yeah. like seeing the theater, but then like thinking, I was like, oh, that's what it means. It's just like, okay, that's, yeah. that's crazy. I think again, it's good to like point out like this inspiration and like good for film students who are listening to like watch things because um, um, Charlotte Wells speaks about how that's very inspired by Chantal Ackerman and like the film itself yeah. is like News From Home is a big inspiration and that one specifically there's this film where Chantal Ackerman uh, I forget what's called La Chambre where yes where she does like a full like spin through her entire house over and over again and that's kind of what she was pulling with with that end where it's like you're going in a circle and it's like this completion of like something and of a life and of like you know I mean of like th- that there are these people in the background that keep changing you know what I mean so it's like you're the, the, the concept itself isn't changing like, while you're doing it, but like the things around it are. And also like kind of backtracking for a second, um, another thing that's a good collaboration is that Gregory Oke is the, um, I don't know if I said that right, is um, the cinematographer, and he's actually the one that brought in those like m- those images of reflections because that's what he focuses on in his work. Um, Charlotte what, Wells also talked- What else talk- has he done? I do not remember. I just know that Charlotte Wells said that she, both him and the director of photography were like, very involved with like reflections mm-hmm. and they brought that aspect to this film because she wasn't necessarily like thinking of that but they were like they were really like kind of the the head of that so i think a lot of credit goes to like those people for having that conversation with her and for her for like being like yeah let's go let's try it you know because i think it does it's such a very beautiful way of doing it i think i always prefer when you have a frame that you can linger on there's multiple parts of it where you can see people i think that just it's so much richer because you really get to sit in that way. like thematically it, it rings a lot but i think even execution wise too like that's if it's not timed right it's not edited right then it then it breaks the sense of just like realism and immersion especially with the execution but it's like such a smooth well well composed shot and just yeah it's like it has to be done with extreme precision and it's done so so a lot of credit to that. I mean, I think, you know, it's like somebody who bought, wants to be like a cinematographer and do stuff like that. It's like, this is just a great example of like, you know, what to do with like match edits and how it just works so great. And just the camera pants and how smooth it is. It's just, it's incredible that Char Wells was able to like really end this film the way she did. And I'm just amazed by it. Yeah. But before we get into final thoughts, I just want to say, as someone who focus I, I tend to focus a lot on editing they should have gotten the best editing nomination at the oscars it really should have, more so than elvis um <laughs> there was hate in here no don't, don't respect it the yeah the, the, the edit the editing is just like it, it's something that isn't talked about enough i think with this movie and it's like it's something that does get kind of overlooked unfortunately but yeah we're, we're just about out of time on after sun so what are our final thoughts i we're all very positive about it. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess one thing I want to mention with my final thought is the idea of like of home was such a prevalent you know image in this film. Seeing like 
you know, there's this conversation between Sophie and Callum kind of like, would do you ever see yourself coming back home? And he's like, I don't feel like I was ever home. And I think that really shows the distinction between like, as you start growing up, you start kind of separating like who you are versus what you came from. And I think that this film is kind of about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, this is just a very emotional and captivating film. I think, you know, it's one of those films that, you know, takes a while to sit with, but then once it hits you, it just hits you. It's just one of those films that, you know, you gotta definitely take your time with and, you know, your watch and just take, like, you know, just really feel what is going on, just knowing all those subtleties and just really, it just knows when it's hitting it. It just hits it home for me, and I think it hits it home for like a lot of people. And yeah, it's just great. I mean, it was my number two of the year um, from last year, and nine out of ten for this. Um, I think it's the best movie of 2022. I think it's an incredible feature. Um, for again, for me, I'm coming from it from a very personal angle, but I think it's probably the best film to deal with with grief and to deal with that loss. And I'm I think for anyone out there who's a part of the part of the this sounds so like crass but the dead parent club um go see this movie because i think that just charlotte wells sharing this grief is such a strong thing and the way she does it because i think she has so much respect for the people in her life that have passed away and she has so much respect for her father and to be able to do that in art to be able to like reanimate these people and to have to relive that grief and to relive that experience and do it so well and to do it with so much respect and to not like harm that person or harm their memory or harm the people around them, but like uphold it and uplift it and transform it. I hope I can do that with my own work. I am deeply, admir like I have so much admiration for this um, and the way that she presented this. And I just, yeah, um, I can't wait to see what she does next because I think she is an incredible talent and I love the way she creates. I love the way her mind works. Yeah, to give, to give you an idea of how much more I enjoyed it, this one on the first watch, um, after some originally didn't was barely made my top 20 now it's in my top five so that just shows how 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 how, how much better it gets like on a rewatch and just as a film it's incredibly emotional in terms of as everyone says how it handles grief how it handles just like individuality or even just how it it explores subtlety in in ways that are so emotionally powerful bittersweet and like kind of devastating at the same time like it it's a film that when you leave the theater or when you turn off your computer or, or television or telephone, you're just like, it's on your mind like for like such a long time. Like it, it sticks with you and that's the best kind of film regardless of what it's about. If it sticks with you for months on end, it's doing something right. And this film gets it right. It's just such a impressive debut feature film with incredible performances and really great script and great editing. Just all around the execution is fantastic. Um, I don't believe this is streaming on a streaming service as of now, but when it does or if whenever it comes out on Blu-ray, please check it out if you would like to. We all highly recommend it. And I'm going to give After Sun a 9 out of 10 as well. Now we're going to move on from After Sun to All Quiet on the Western Front. This is a remake of the 1930 film, which in, was also an adaptation of the novel by Eric Maria Remarque. It's an anti-war film and it stars uh, Felix Kameri, I'm not going to pronounce these names right, I'm sorry, um, Abrex Such and Daniel Bruhl, and it was directed by Edward Berger. This is a German film. 
and it is a it's about a young German soldier's terrifying experiences with distress on the Western Front during World War One, and he thinks it's going to be a very like patriotic, uplifting experience in war, but then he show, he realizes just the absolute horrors of what war can bring. What do we think? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I mean, I knew about Old Cloud and the Western Front. I mean, I think this, like, the original was a Best Picture winner of that same year. Um, it, um, and, you know, I think for the time, like, when it came out, it was, it was pretty, like, captivating in some ways. But I think now you can kind of see its age, um, obviously. But I think it still got the message across. This one, I think, is definitely, I think this is better, in my opinion. I think this is a very raw, very gritty type of film that, it's, that has a very immersive immersive feel to it. I think from the first shot onward, it's like you're just hooked into these characters and this battlefield and all the situations that are going on, and you just kind of realize something about, like, because although, yeah, it's an anti-war film, and the message is like pretty clear even from the trailers and the idea of all quiet on the Western Front. You do kind of see the process of our main character really getting, like thinking he's gonna go in and like be this, like not be this hero, but you know, serve his country and then just seeing all the hardships of war right in front of him and to see how it just tangles with all of his emotions. And it's just a very great, it's like a very entertaining and impressive film. I think it's really worth mentioning that the author of the original book was drafted into the war in 1916 in Belgium, and he took place in trench warfare. And um, I could totally be wrong about this, but from what I've heard about the film is that this is like one of the most accurate depictions of what it was really like to be in the trenches. And I feel like, personally, I think this is my favorite war film I've ever seen. Oh, really? I, yeah, I think that like something about the emotion that it evicted um, through like the chaos was so like potent. It was absolutely shocking. And I think that like, first off, I just want to say the makeup was really well done, like showing, you know, the main character, Paul, when he first joins the military, he's supposed to be 17. And over like, they do such a good job at aging him up while keeping him looking young at the same time. Like it's so meticulous that it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, this, I, I haven't read the novel, nor have I seen the 1930 film, so I'm only judging this solely as what it, as what it is. Um, as a war film, it's really, really good. Um, in terms of how it explores the horrors of war, just like how devastatingly awful it can be at times, and just putting, especially putting that in, in the putting yourself in the shoes of someone that's so young, thinking it's going to be like so patriotic, when, when in reality it's like basically soul crushing like you, you are not the same person once you step onto the battlefield once you leave like it sticks with you for the rest of your life they handle that very very well in this movie and uh, uh, forgive me if, if I sound like a little all over the place because just because of school and all that I didn't get the chance to rewatch this film I did watch this back in like December so it's not super fresh with me but in terms of replicating the war experience putting you into the war that is done very well. They're, like cinematography-wise, production design, very well captures just the the nineteen the 1910s of World War One. Um, I personally, in terms of war films, I would not consider this to be my favorite. Like I personally prefer um, 
films like Dunkirk or um, Grave of the Fireflies is a s severely devastating emotional experience. But in terms of anti-war pieces, this is definitely a very good one just because it shows real, just real world horrors, like and almost nothing else that's like really positive other than just like what we think it is on the surface. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I think like, you know, war films are always like something that, you know, let me draw like an order. I meant to like draw an older audience in some way. Um, and I mean, I, and I can kind of see what people were kind of thinking when this was like announced by Netflix. It's like, oh, you're just another Oscar bait type film. And yes, it was nominated for Oscars. But I think like, you know, it's, it kind of deserves it in a lot of respects. I think it's like one of those films that really like, you know, has this nice perspective on war, but it prevents it in like a way that's super effective. And, you know, personally for me, it's like, I think war films are kind of tiring at this point, I think, because, you know, what was it? It was probably after Apocalypse Now, where every single um, film about war, even like the original Quiet Person from, it's like, it does, it does kind of go down repetitive territories. Um, and it's like, war, it's war films have been, just been done to death. I think there's some, I don't know if there's like any new perspective you can really give on the topic of war, but I think do I but I'm thinking like due to like, you know, all the stuff that's going on right now in um in Europe between Russia and Ukraine, which I think that's the only time I'll probably mention that topic since it is a very sensitive topic, it is like a pretty well timed release for this film. Um, because I think it just knows like and knows like the effects of war and knows how like even the most like innocent individual can be changed by something that is just basically like gruesome for countries and for families and for a lot of people and it's just one of those films that you know really knows what it knows its audience and really takes thinks about this war this whole war idea this whole idea of like war the war films like pretty effectively yeah so first off i saw grave of the fireflies too and that movie was absolutely heartbreaking it was a little too heartbreaking for me but um i agree i think that like war films in general can be really repetitive and i think what makes this film stand apart a little bit is that it's not just about like the combat like so much focus of this is is really showing kind of the character changing like even his facial expressions from the beginning through the end of the film you know it it he becomes so much more gaunt as if he's not surprised anymore by the horrors that he's seeing and i think that that's a really interesting element rather than having like gasp shock and awe every time anything bad happens um and also kind of another element that i think makes this stand out is the the meticulous levels of discomfort that they show so devastatingly specifically like the mud something about the mm -hmm. mud was such a like a visceral feeling like they have these characters their hands are freezing they're constantly you know um like soaking wet and i think that the the water and like seeing this kind of like you know like the blood reflecting in the darkness where you can kind of not even see the anything but silhouettes but you can see this red in the water is such a image of just amount the amount of people that die i i think too what for me why this is a very interesting war film. It's not kind of what you were saying. It's not just solely about the combat. Because when we think about war, we think of like the tanks, the gunplay, like per, like missiles being shot. It's just very violent activity. But there's also a lot of just 
um, they also focus on the ar- the armatist side, like the politics surrounding it. Like it's sometimes just it's people in buildings talking, discussing, planning, strategizing, and that's what's really interesting about this film is that there's not at least from what I recall, I can't remember the most recent war film that I've seen that had a strong focus on that as well. And apparently that wasn't in the book, like the storyline of them being of like the armistice negotiations that was not present in the original novel, which is interesting because it, it feels like it fits so perfectly with the story just because it's not pro-war. It's like war is bad. Basically that's the whole, like in the simplest terms of how to summarize the, the movie and it shows both sides of it too. So that was a really interesting out. Oh yeah, I mean, especially like the scene where it's like when they're talking about the automatons and like, you know, you have Daniel Grohl's character talking to uh, the uh, leader, like not like, not like a leader, but like one of the people from the opposing side and just like, you know, trying to say like, we need to end this now, like people are really dying, we're losing men every single day, like both sides and you just kind of see that how he how like the other uh, the opposing figures is like when well, you have 72 hours instead of just like you know ending it right that moment it just gets like why are you waiting on this like and it's just like you know it's just showing um how much of a battle of grits this is on both sides because like you know in most cases like you know if you're gonna lose like so many people it's like you would just end that right away but no they're gonna like keep it going for the next three days and just like it just was like and once when and once he like mentions that you just you start seeing like this full out not this full out like battle scene but like this whole scene of just like tragedy upon tragedy and like what new elements of the war they're introducing and like the flamethrowers and the tanks and it's like oh man it's like you just start to feel like gut punch it's like we gotta end this now and it's like no we're gonna try to make it look like we have the upper hand here and it's just like it just gets so tragic. We're going to transition to a quick PSA and we'll be right back with more BG Banter. Welcome back to BG Banter. We're continuing our conversation on All Quiet on the Western Front. One question that I wanted to ask, how do we feel about the music in this film? Because I I have mixed feelings about this. I love the music in oh, this film. I absolutely, I do. I think that like there's, you know, I would say it's almost a random soundtrack in some ways with like, I don't know, the, there's like a, uh, a repetitious, almost horn sound that's really deep and has three notes to it. And it's not necessarily put in in like consistent moments, it's just kind of throughout the film. And I actually thought that was really interesting because it, it sounded mechanical and it reminded like the audience constantly like that this is a machine of death. Like everything that's going on, every like every scene in this movie is all working towards the same kind of like um, lack of individuality of like a community that's just forced to constantly be on the front lines. And I think like having this idea of the, all these characters knowing like oh I'm on the front lines and the only thing I can do is run as a unit so that some of us can live is such a interesting way that's kind of, you know, to show how bleak things are. And I think the soundtrack really works with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually agree because I think, you know, I mean, I know it's like a trend for like a lot of like period pieces to go and like put in modern musical instruments. But I mean, I think with this, it's like, it works pretty effectively because like you said, it's just kind of like this bare bones mechanical type soundtrack. And and that's basically what war is. War is kind of like this machine in some way, and 
and it's not and it's like man-made in some way but it's like sometimes you just can't control that and it's like because you know like if any was it any other like filmmaker or like you know something like about 1917 that will kind of find ways to make it uplifting but but in somewhat gritty but this one i think you know it's just going straight to the bare grittiness of it because that's just what that's what that's just what war is it really just feels like it's so mechanical and so like cold and that's what i kind of felt like when i was like hearing that electric guitar like go through those first three notes so like it just feels that way yeah i i agree with the execution like sort of the mechanical quality of it my problem is kind of what you said it seemed a little it felt a little too modern though it, like it really really clashed with with the story with like this being in the 1910s and like i'm all for like adding like non-period um accurate music if it's appropriate like for example an inappropriate one would be in a Baz Luhrmann film like Great Gatsby or Elvis, that, or Elvis. <laughs> that's terrible and it does a disservice this one I at least see a point but also it came it became to a point where it was a little too repetitive too because I listened to the entire score for this because it was nominated for best original score I'm going through all those and after a while I'm just like this all sounds the same and maybe that's the point but it's like i don't know when you have like a musical score i want there to be a little some like some bit difference and there is with the score like there's some really like i think probably one of the most haunting elements is when it just shows like the barren battlefields and just sort of like i'm not a music person so it's almost like a one string violin or something <laughs> that that's very effective but when it's the, it's the three notes and it repeats that all throughout and not in different like pitches or anything it's like okay this is getting a little a little annoying now. It kind of reminded me of the foghorn in the lighthouse. Um, oh. And I could not stand that foghorn. Um, like, it just, it droned constantly. But um, that was probably because, like, it was just very loud when I saw it in a theater. But um, I feel like the the mechanical, you know, rep repetition of this, like, tritone in this film, uh, I liked it because, like... I guess it felt maddening intentionally. It felt like like it was just there's nothing that could stop it. Like all these soldiers are just these, you know, parts of this machine that's continuously moving forward and marching forward. And I think it's supposed to show how unchanging war is. Yeah, I mean, pretty much, yeah. I mean, I honestly like think that's like the whole purpose. I mean, I think it also fits in pretty nicely with like the sound design. Because, I mean, I watched this, like, on a sound bar, but, and, and, you know, I have, like, I always love sound design. I mean, I think that's, like, what I, I think that's, like, where, you know, sometimes, like, you know, if I just get a good, good sound out of a film, it's, like, you know, and it feels right, it's, like, yeah, that's what I want. It's, like, because I just want to be, like, jumping up and down, like, yes, that's what I want to feel. And with this, it's, like, the sound design is really impactful. Like, I think, it, like, just going through the battle feels and just you know like feeling like feeling like you're there because although i really do wish i saw this in the theaters like i really yeah. wish that i saw this like at film scene or something because it just i really want to feel immersed by this whole like battlefield and just make it seem like that you know i'm there i'll, I'll be honest i think if i had seen this in the theater i would have liked it a lot more and i it's it's not like I, I try not to put that much fall on the film just because it was a Netflix original and you could probably blame me because I did, probably didn't watch this in the most ideal of ways. I watched it on my on my computer. I do have a second monitor, so it's like still, but it's like it's it's clearly it meant to be an immersive experience. Like that's what war films are. Is like 
regardless if it's pro-war or anti-war, you want to be immersed in that world. And, like, see, seeing this, especially because it's so cold and sterile, too, there's, like, not a lot of light in this in this film, like, like literally, visually. Like, there's not a lot of sunlight, I think, or especially it's probably near the beginning and like most most of like the what is this two and a half hours most of that is like it looks like what it's like outside right now it's just like <laughs> pale and depressing so yeah but like i also love how even though this is mostly about the war experiences like on the battlefield it also does touch on the fact and i mentioned this earlier the fact that it sticks with you though even when they're off the battlefield or even if they don't show them like go, going back home, it's just like, you know that they're gonna live with that for the rest of their life, unfortunately. Like, it's ne they're a changed person, and unfortunately kind of for the worse. Yeah, but I also kind of like, you know, a lot of the scenes like early on and how they kind of revisit them, like the whole scene of like them, I don't know, banging themselves into the chips and goose or something, where they're going inside that French farmer's house and just grabbing it. And, uh, you know, you, you, and they come back to that later on and it's like nothing feels the same like because it's like things they used to do no longer feels like like dang like I don't feel good about this anymore and it just it really does have like this type of like you know react harshness and re realness to it because the other thing I really do like about the scene is like like about this film is like you know how impactful a lot of the death scenes are and this like you get very violent movie yeah very <laughs> violent and but it's like it feels very raw when you see somebody get run over with a tank it's like oh man that's like hurts and then like just seeing like this whole like all this carnage and like it's not like that type of carnage where you would see or like you know like gives you the adrenaline it's like oh man just please stop now it's like it feels that way I mean it just wears on you yeah, so one thing, I mean, of course, this is an extremely, extremely violent movie, and I think the special effects are, you know, it goes without saying that it's, it's amazing. And, you know, the mechanics themselves, like seeing tanks and literal flamethrowers, which I was not expecting, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, sorry, wow, it's extremely bloody. But I also think that the way that they show the carnage in the beginning scene is almost more impactful than any of the blood. And what I'm spe specifically talking about is like, we see some soldiers die and we see their jackets get processed. Mm -hmm. And that scene was so impactful to me because like it goes through the motions of like seeing the jackets taken off the corpses, them getting washed and restitched and having the name tags pulled out. Mm -hmm. And there's this moment of like how the, when the main character gets his suit, they give him a, they actually give him one with the name tag still in it. And his response is, oh, this belongs to someone else, which really shows the innocence. And the response is, you know, to take the name tag out and throw it on the floor and be like, nope, it was a mistake. And yeah. it's just this way of showing, you know, again, that lack of individuality, but also like the sheer numbers of the soldiers lost before the movie like officially kind of starts running. It, it's such an impactful way to show it. Yeah. The the, the movie doesn't even start at the beginning of the First World War. It starts near the end of it. It's like, this is 1917 when, when it started, and where the movie starts at least. And it's just like, you know how many lives were probably lost like since 1914? It's just like, it's still going. Like the body count just accumulates. And it's just, that that's a real sticking point. Just like how it starts off right, right off the bat, just like the grim tone, but also just showing how that the innocence is just completely lost like in these young men and how it just never goes away. Well, and it's also like, you know, it's like this whole cycle, like, because, you know, the cycle, I, yeah. yeah, it's like the whole, it's like the whole reason why the, 
like to score feels so mechanical and so like oh, and like so man-made because like you know it's like you're going into this battlefield and then all of a sudden like you, you all of a sudden like die and then all of a sudden like you're and then like your clothes get washed reprocessed the tags get taken off to give them to the next person to go do the same thing over and over again and it could be the same thing with like the um daniel Brühl's character and like the um, politics behind me because I guarantee they probably had those conversations numerous times that we need to end the war now and they don't oblige and so it it feels like this whole mechanical machine which you know it's like it's like when it circles back to that far that French farmer it really just knows like that it's doing its job it's feeling like this big cycle where it's like you're going in and you're coming out and it's just like it literally is that machine like thing Feel we're just about out of time for our conversation on All Quiet on the Western Front, so final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, this was a very impressive film. I don't know if it's like my favorite war film. I mean, I think for me, I like prefer something like Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, or Saving Private Ryan. But I do think, like, you know, it really has the effect it wants to. It makes, it, it makes war feel like a mechanical machine, and it's like just worth the watch just because of the immersion and the sound design. And, they, 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 they got to they get this to theaters sometime because I really want to see this on like an surround sound setup and make, just be immersed by this whole environment that this film creates. And yeah, I give this like an 8 out of 10. Yeah, I think that um, I agree with everything you're saying. I would love to see this on the theater. Um, but you know, I feel like, you know, I would recommend this movie, um, I would give it like a 9 out of 10, personally. I think that it does a really good job with its characters, you know, none of the deaths feel cliche, and I think that there's a certain realism with um, specifically the trench warfare that I've, I, I think is truly unparalleled. Um, it honestly taught me a lot. <laughs> yeah, this, it, it's a very solid war film, specifically anti-war film, not only kind of echoing what everyone says like immersion but just showing the horrors of it like I can't even though I wouldn't say this is my favorite war film like like I said I prefer films like Dunker, Grave of Fireflies or actually I always forget this is an anti-war film Come and See one of the most emotionally soul-crushing movies of all time like this still captures that really really well and especially from a historical lens too this is these this happened this is an event in our history men were lost like hundreds of thousands of men and it's it's heartbreaking but also it's really just well crafted too just on uh, in a lot of ways i would love to see this in a theater i'm also interested in seeing the original film from 1930 and yeah it's currently streaming on netflix check it out if you would like to i'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. and that concludes this episode of bg banter tune in next week where we're going to be talking about eo the film about a donkey on criterion channel as well as Mithrigan, or Megan, the universal horror film that for some reason was really popular for a brief moment in our, in our history back in January of this year. Anyway, I've been, I've been Matthew. I've been Daniel. I'm Kat. And we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>